Well, good morning, and I don't know about you, but as we sing some of these songs, they even in themselves can present some of the challenges that I think we've been talking about in this series on deconstruction. It is well with my soul, right? I mean, and Amy talks about just war and difficulty. We see it around the world, and unless you're maybe just not a human, you know, you, you may just think, oh, I just blindly believe in whatever, but those things for me actually can present a real struggle to look in the world and say, where is God? Am I alone in that? Or does other people get some amens out there on that one? Okay, just checking. You know, I know I'm a weirdo, so it could just be me. So, But we're in this series that we're calling Deconstruction When Faith Shatters. And if you think back to week one, you might remember what we're talking about. I just want to refresh this image in your mind. And it's that Jenga game where we have the pieces stacked up, and we hear about the war in Ukraine, or we hear about just difficulty in the world, we see the evil that happens around us, or we just have good old honest questions about faith. And we find that we begin to move these puzzle pieces in and out, and that tower begins to get shakier and shakier. And I get it. When you begin a game of Jenga, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? But man, the longer that game gets played, the more nervous you become, the less stable those hands get when you go to reach for that piece because you don't want to be the one. That's a great illustration for our faith, isn't it? At least it is for me. And so that's, where we're, that's what we've been talking about. We're just kind of going through this whole series where we're trying, we're trying to answer. I'm trying to answer, and my team that helps me put these messages together, uh, we're trying to answer the most pressing questions that we can think of when it comes to deconstructing faith. In fact, one of the questions we usually ask every week in our meeting is, what are the burning issues? What are the burning questions that this topic might bring up that we want to make sure we address? However, we're very realistic, and we understand that maybe not everything we talk about on a Sunday morning hits every question you may have. And so in two weeks, we're going to wrap this series up, and I've, I may have mentioned this. We're going to have a panel. There's going to be about five of us on the stage that are talking about deconstruction from different perspectives and angles. But as a part of that day, we want to know, are there questions that you have that we haven't answered yet? Are there things that may be a topic that I've presented on Sunday have brought to your mind and you're thinking, okay, that just opens a whole can of worms and I need some help dealing with this? If so, we want to use this, the last Sunday in the series, to answer and address those. So on the screen, you're going to see a phone number and all this good stuff. So if you have questions that you would like us to consider or to address in a couple of weeks, Text them to 515-518-0998. That's a Google voice number the church has. So all those things will pop in here and we will see them. Uh, don't worry, this slide will go away in a second. But if you miss it in the weekly email newsletter that we send out on Wednesdays, that information's in there as well. And so you don't have to just send them this morning. You can, you know, send it, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you have this pressing question and you think, I want help with this. Shoot it this way, 515-518-0998, and we'll do our best to, uh, to answer as many of those as we can that last Sunday. So please feel free. This is your time to feedback to us even more so. But speaking of phones, go ahead and pull your phones out because I do need your help this morning. So pull that phone out. And uh, if you have a smartphone, which I'm assuming everybody in, in this place does, uh, I need you to go to a website, Okay. And we're going to put the website on the screen now. It's menti.com, M-E-N-T-I.com. 
Now, you may be thinking, what are we doing here? This is truly the interactive portion. We have a couple of questions we want to ask you. Now, this poll is completely anonymous, so we won't know what your response is to follow up and be like tricky after the service and be like, well, you said this, so we want you to you know, answer for that. No, completely anonymous. But we want to ask you a couple of questions this morning when it comes to deconstruction, specifically about the topic we're dealing with today, which is doubt and certainty and kind of the mystical nature of faith. So when you get to that website, you're going to enter that code 35121240. Okay, so I'm going to give you a second. All right, so if you're there, you should see question one already pop up on the screen. And question one is this, is it wrong to doubt Christian faith? Is it wrong to doubt Christian faith? And we give you some options here. You can say, yes, it's always wrong. Sometimes it's wrong. No, it's never wrong. Or we're so nice, we even give you an out where you can say, I'm just not sure. Maybe you don't know. So go ahead, everybody answer. All right, let's see if we can put the results on the screen. Okay. Okay. Oh, look at that. 84% say never wrong, 12% say sometimes, and 3% not sure. Oh, I will take that as a huge compliment for being a part of Ashworth that we've taught you well. (laughs) We have encouraged you not to be afraid of doubt, which is good. Now, the second one may not be as easy, so they're going to flip to the second question. It should pop up on your phones out there. Question two is... How often do you experience doubt? Uh Uh-oh, now we just got personal. Yeah, rut row. So the answers are never, rarely, perhaps a few times before, sometimes like a few times a year, often like once a month or all the time. Don't you love it, that responsive website right there? Man, just as you answer, it's going up and down. See if it's going to stop. It's like waiting for the popcorn in the microwave. Right? Did we get that last kernel? Is there one more kernel? <laughs> what do we see here? Uh, oh, some, see, there it was. That last kernel just went. Uh, rarely. Okay, 15% said you rarely doubt. Lucky you. Uh, sometimes, maybe a few times a year. So looks like the majority of us are there. Uh, fairly often, 23%. Okay, thanks for your honesty. And 18%? Wow. Said all the time. Thank you for the honesty there. That... And I hope that as you answer that question, you don't feel bad or guilty. I hope that the first question informs that second to say, this is a state safe place to be able to say, I doubt a lot. I'm trying to figure this out. You know, when it comes to faith and doubt, something interesting has happened. And maybe not here from that first question we see, but for, for us, there's something interesting that's happened where in most places, it seems like we, we look at this whole idea and we're like, no, don't do it. It's bad. And so we do everything we can to try to avoid it. And maybe if you're in that last category, the last two categories where you often doubt or you doubt all the time, you may feel that like shame about it, you know, wondering if somebody's going to look down on you because of it. But, you know, as, a, as churches, as Christendom has developed, we've kind of tried to squelch that doubt. We've tried to lean on a side that says, no, don't have those. That's wrong. In fact, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, you, got, you know it's going to be a great sermon when I'm quoting Nietzsche. He said, uh, Christianity has done its utmost to close the circle and declared that even doubt to be a sin. I mean, that's per- we feel that way sometimes, don't we? Or we feel that maybe way all the time. At face value, though, to be fair, 
When you begin to look and explore the Bible, you understand why some people would look at doubt and say, don't do it, don't ever do it. Because you can read the Bible and actually come away and see that, that faith is celebrated. You know, you go to Hebrews chapter 11, and you have just verse after verse after verse celebrating these great heroes of the faith. And all these verses start with, by faith, Abraham did this, and by faith, Noah did this, and by faith, this person did that. And you just like, wow, you know, you can almost see the, the, the applause going off, uh, that they followed God by faith. And then you even go to the Gospels, and there's a few problem passages we'd have to deal with there because, you know, on more than one occasion, Jesus looked at his followers or his disciples, and he would say things like this, oh, you have little faith. Oh, because you had little faith, he said that too. You know, one time there's the story when Jesus was walking on water, cool story, um, the disciples were on a boat going across the lake. Jesus is coming later. He's walking across the water. Disciples see him. They think it's a ghost. They realize it's Jesus. Peter, my favorite, says, well, if it's really you, Jesus, tell me to come out and walk to you. And uh, Jesus is like, sure, cool, come on. So Peter gets out of the boat. And he walks on water. And, and for a moment, he, it's, you know, it has to be this incredible experience. And then he sees where he is. And he begins to notice the waves and the water and all this, and he begins to sink. And Jesus, uh, you know, Matthew 14 says, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he looked at Peter and he said, oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? Seems like a pretty, a pretty good indictment there, right? Like scolding Peter. Or even when you go to the book of James, who many believe was written by Jesus' brother, James writes this, he says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable. Well, there's a good couple of adjectives right there. You are double-minded and unstable if you doubt. So we understand when we read things like this, we can walk away very easily and go, well, doubt bad, faith good. Don't doubt, ever. And so we push ourselves to not ever doubt. And so because of this, is that the way it is? Well, today I just want to contend, and I want to challenge us a little bit, that maybe the issue is not with our doubting. Maybe the issue is even deeper than that. It's with our definition of faith. How do we define faith? Now, what do I mean? Well, somewhere along the way in the Christian journey, we started equating faith, not with just trust, but with psychological certainty. You agree with that? That somewhere along the way, it was like faith is certainty. And I heard it explained this way one time. It says when something happens to you, let's say you get that bad medical diagnosis and you begin to pray for healing. We believe that we are saved by faith or that healing can come through faith. So when we approach these situations, what do we do? We pray, which we should. But then we begin to assume that if I struggle thinking it's going to happen, or if I don't have that certainty that, yes, God is going to do this, then God will not answer that prayer. At least that's how I am. Maybe I'm projecting onto you. But think about the implications of this, though. What does that mean? If faith equals certainty, if our salvation or our healing or our answers to prayer depends on certainty, that really adjusts our relationship with God, doesn't it? I mean, it really begins to twist things around in a pretty convoluted way because it really 
everything we're hoping for depends on me not doubting, not having questions, and just having that certainty, blind certainty. And then if I have that, then God becomes obligated to act on our behalf because of our certainty. So God's response is then based on me. And that's a little problematic. And what about, you know, those of us who just by the nature of our personalities just love to ask questions? What does that mean for us? Well, it means we're just screwed, I guess, because God's never going to hear anything we say because we have questions. It's just baked into us. You know, and then we hear the stories, and, you, and I've shared this before. There was a church in California. One of the worship leaders had a daughter who tragically died in their sleep at two years old, stopped breathing, and the church went into full praying mode for this, for the, for this girl. And not just, I mean, at this point she was already dead, and so they were praying for resurrection, And for six days, this church and their well-known record label and millions around the world through the hashtag WakeUpOlive were believing and praying, praying for her resurrection. And I just want you to know, if you look at the social media stuff that was happening and the things, I mean, they wrote a song about it. I mean, it was huge. I can tell you, this group of people, they were certain. They were certain that Olive was going to rise up to be resurrected. But after six days, there was no resurrection. The church then had to put out a statement, basically saying, Olive hasn't been raised. The breakthrough we sought hasn't come. With the same heart of confidence or certainty in God's goodness, we received the comfort of the Good Shepherd as we walked together through the valley of the shadow of death. And so we're moving towards a memorial service. Who failed here? (laughs) That's a good question, right? But we understand if we equate faith with certainty, then in this situation, God failed, right? But if maybe faith isn't certainty, maybe it gives us room. Was their faith not strong enough? Were they not certain enough? I mean, you go through something like this, or even you see something like this, and I'll tell you, you can find yourself in a full-blown faith crisis. And if there's one thing that I know And it's one thing our group was talking about when we were discussing this message on Monday is that life will beat the certainty out of you. Anybody else agree with that? I mean, it will just knock you down and then just keep stomping on you until certainty is not there. And can I tell you, that's okay. Not that life does it, but when you experience it, we don't have to feel guilty about it because faith does not mean certainty. Say that with me. Faith does not mean certainty. That's right. We need to recognize that what many of us have called faith, it's not. You see, we've made an idol out of certainty. Think about that. But then think about also what happens when we make an idol of certainty. There's a lot of different things, a lot of different issues that can happen because of this. I mean, one of the things that can happen is that certainty can breed legalism, strict rules and regulations to follow, lines to stay within. Why? Because this becomes a system that we can control, or at least it gives us the illusion of control. And we really could look to the Pharisees in the Bible and the system that they created and the certainty that they had within that system to see what happened. Pastor and author Brian Zahn wrote a book, uh, it's on deconstruction, he called, When Everything's on Fire. If you're looking for more on this, I highly recommend it. 
Um, and he says this, he says, biblical certainty was the drug of choice for the young Pharisee Saul or Paul, but it only made him mean certitude can be an incubator for cru cruelty. Perceived infallibility can lead to brutality. I mean, you think about this. The Pharisees were very certain and they created this system, this structure, this control, these rules. But what did it do? It put them in a place where they found the loopholes to not have compassion for anyone, not even to care for their own families. This is what happens when we lean into this uh, certainty. In fact, when we dig into how Paul viewed himself in Acts chapter 26, he's describing himself, and listen to how he describes himself, this Pharisee. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, here's a guy who's certain about this faith, and what it laid, led him to do was to go and just be as cruel as possible. And he says, and that's just what I did. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I mean, think about that. Paul is in the room, and it's like, there's Keegan, all in favor of sending her to the lions. There we go. I'm in. Let's do it. He did that. Many a time I went from one synagogue to the other to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. That is what certainty will do for you. Is there any greater example than what we see in the current political and social climate in our country? where our certainty about our beliefs and our political views leads to not compassion but cruelty against one another. We've removed the humanity from one another to where we see them as causes to be defeated rather than people to be loved. That's what certainty does for us. Paul says, I was convinced. What's a good synonym for convinced? <laughs> Certain. And this highlights more of the problems with it. More of the problems with certainty is because it gives us a false confidence. It's not a true confidence. It's a false confidence. And it's false security. And it makes us, and it makes what we believe or the doctrine, the center of our faith as opposed to Jesus. That becomes everything to us. Not Jesus. Jesus kind of gets pushed to the side in our belief in how all the things that we hold to be true. That becomes our focus. And anytime we focus on anything other than Jesus, we've created an idol. And there's a problem with this because we, we want to think that all idols are bad, and they're really not. Idols are good things, can be good things that we've just elevated to the improper place. We've given them prominence over even Jesus. But you know what one of the biggest problems of certainty is? Is that it removes the nuance of faith. It removes the mystery, the mysticism of faith. It just, it's black and white. And again, you can't live in this world for more than 15 minutes and understand that this world is anything but black and white. And when you try to live in a system of black and white, you understand, you go, well, this doesn't work. This doesn't meet. This doesn't, yeah, this is pointless. And so you understand that when certainty is the goal, it's easy to deconstruct to the point of deconversion and just pitch it all because it just doesn't work in the real world. We're going to talk more about the nuance of faith in a moment, but Augustine once said this, nice little Latin for you, see comprehendus non est deus. You like that? Latin for if you comprehend there is no God, or better put, a comprehended God is no God. 
Isn't that amazing? I love that. You know, that faith chapter I mentioned earlier, Hebrews chapter 11, um, it begins, yeah, it lists all these people. But verse 1 is such an important part of understanding what faith is. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11. 1. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Let me read that again. Faith is confidence, but it's confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Trust, trust or faith in what? What are we talking about? It's what we hope for. It's specifically about what we don't have right now. It's not what's right in front of us that we can see, that we can touch. Now, that can lead us to a, an interesting place where we can go, oh, well, then faith is blind. No, that's not what we're saying. There can be rational understanding of faith, but we need to understand that there's, a, there's going to be a little bit in the fog. There's going to be a little bit we can't see yet. In fact, have you ever heard the expression, a leap of faith? You heard that? Um, well, I'm going to tell you, you've heard that expression wrong. Don't feel bad. I didn't know it either until I was reading and studying recently. The phrase is actually from the Danish philosopher, 19th century Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. What a sermon, man. You're getting Nietzsche. Yeah. You're getting Kierkegaard. You're welcome. Man, just what a day. What a day. <laughs> Exactly. Remember, Kierkegaard, 19th century, the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, everything, including faith, became an intellectual pursuit. And if it couldn't be reasoned, it must not be true. Now, it's an oversimplification, but pretty close. But the phrase that he developed wasn't a leap of faith, but it was a leap to faith. Prepositions matter, people. <laughs> it wasn't a leap of faith but a leap to faith. And Kierkegaard affirms that a leap to faith isn't because you don't have sufficient evidence, but because faith cannot be reduced to an intellectual test that one passes by mental assent alone. Mental assent, the intellect, the reason will all get you close. It can get you the direction of. But faith involves not just the mind, it involves the heart as well. So we have to learn to balance because we might want to go the other direction. Well, but faith is a feeling. No, faith isn't just a feeling. Yeah, it's, that's part of it. And faith just isn't empirical uh, proof. Faith is the action that we take that's based on what has been revealed to the head and the heart. We, we see it, we, we, we begin to understand it, we kind of sort of wrap our minds around it, and we get to that place, what faith is, is it says we then have to choose. We're then either going to take that leap to faith, or we're going to take a leap away from faith. Philip Yancey, love him, author, um, he wrote once, he said, for who in the presence of certainty would need faith at all? And then that a great question. So, does this mean we can be certain of nothing? Absolutely not. Not at all. It means we need to rebalance our certainty. Because there are things we can be decently certain of. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I can't be 100%. You know what? I wasn't there. But I do trust what I read in the Bible and the gospel writers and the, the history and Josephus and those things to understand. There was a man named Jesus and something happened and as I look and consider what happened, I go, I can take that leap to faith to believe that the resurrection happened. 
I believe Jesus. I believe in Jesus. You know, for us at Ashworth, we don't have 100 essential beliefs. We have six. And I look at those and I go, I can, I can be fairly certain of those things. But it still doesn't mean I get to 100%. And that's okay. Take a deep breath. For those black and white people in the room, I used to be one of you. It's okay. We can rest in not getting to 100%. Now, you're going to love this one. I got another one. Blaise Pascal. You like that? French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer, and Catholic theologian. Man, he had a lot on his plate. Um, Listen to what he says. He says, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. We know this in countless ways. It is the heart which perceives God and not the reason. That is what faith is. God perceived by the heart, not by reason. Isn't that a great quote. I mean, this is, this is a guy who our, some of our math principles are founded on. No slouch here, you know. And so he's the one that looks and he says, look, you can be a Christian, you can follow Jesus and not get to 100%, and that's okay. You don't have to get all the way there. All the proof, all the reasoning will not get you there. You want to know why? Because... There is a mystical nature to faith. And I'll tell you, I grew up in the world with Josh McDowell and his book, Evidence Demands a Verdict. Anybody read that? The Case for Christ. Yep. Tim Keller, one of my favorites, wrote the book, The Reason for God. Absolutely recommend it. Great book. Wonderful. Tim Keller's done an incredible job when he was planting a church in Manhattan to use reason to reach an intellectual crowd. Great. But all that proof still won't get you there because there will always be a mystical nature to faith. That interaction of the heart and the head that brings faith to life. You know why? Because faith isn't simply something that's simply known. Faith is something that is also experienced. I mean, when we, when we look at Scripture, and it talks a lot, even Amy this morning, I think, the passage you were reading, be still and know that I am God. Our, our enlightenment age, we still follow a lot of the principles there. When we see that word no, we immediately go, head, study, test, pass. But that's not what the Bible means most of the time when it uses the word no. It's an experiential word. Like, go back and when it says Adam knew his wife Eve, what do you think that was talking about? <laughs> yeah. Bow, chicka, wow, wow. There you go. We have to move beyond just the intellectual knowledge. I know, me too. I'm, sometimes I'm surprised, Megan, what comes out of my mouth. But it's to know, to experience intimately, to walk in life together. A book I recently read, the author explains it this way, and I thought this was genius. It says, if we privilege the head over the heart in all matters of inquiry or faith, we may very well cut ourselves off from that which is intellectually unknowable. The rational mind is capable of amazing accomplishments, but it is not an organ suitable for experiencing God. Attempting to use the rational mind as the organ for experiencing God is rather like trying to smell a rose with your ear. There you go. It's good. If there's one thing that the Enlightenment has taught us, it's that all of our intelligence, all of our technological advancements, and the flood of information we have constantly at our fingertips is never going to be enough. It's always going to leave us wanting for purpose, 
for meaning, for understanding, for God. And so we've got to embrace the mystical side of faith. And I use the word mystical on purpose because it just makes me squirm just a little bit. Because good evangelicals or Baptists or whatever word we are, we don't use that word. We want to get to the head side of things and the knowledge. And no, we've got to bring it back to the mystical. I, I know that I can't be the only one that finds myself wanting even when I get the latest gadget, I binge the latest show on Netflix, I experience what the world would classify as success in a banking career and even in pastoring, having a family, two cars, going on nice vacations, living the American dream. Having all this still leaves me wanting. It still leaves me empty. It still leaves me going, this can't be all there is. And even I can know a lot about the Bible and I can still go, that's it. There has to be more. And the great news is there is more. There is more. We long for a deeper experience because there's a deeper experience to be had. That's just how we were created. You know, before the pandemic, I remember talking with our leadership, and I would ask questions like this. What in the world is, gets people out of bed on a Sunday morning to come to a church service, to be here on a Sunday morning? And I think the question is even more prudent now. We could have cool lights. We could have, you know, we could bring in fog machines. Wouldn't that be nice? Just have a little rolling fog over here. You know, we, we have a nice, awesome band. I think our worship team does an amazing job. We could have even better teachers. We could show the greatest communicators of our day on the screen. We could try all that. Now, as I say it, I throw up in my mouth just a little bit. But um, everything we want today, we have at our fingertips. You want great teaching or communication? Apple Podcast. You want great music? Spotify. You want uh, better teaching? Go and look at the self-help section on your Kindle. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets you to want to come? Well, let me back up. What gets me out of bed on Sunday morning is not a paycheck. What gets me out of bed to be here with you isn't that I've studied and I want to share this information. What gets me here is even if I wasn't sitting here is you and the opportunity and the, the, the potential of experiencing God together with you. And I just want you to know there is no rational reason for that to be. For me to want to be here, for you to want to be here, and for us to have this crazy idea that coming together is going to, we're going to experience God together. But it happens. It happened this morning. It's happening now. God is here. I can't explain it. I just know that it is. And it's more than just somebody picking nice songs for us to sing. It's more than having a clever, you know, message series or whatever. What we're talking about is just the mystery of following Jesus. That's what it is. There's a Presbyterian minister and author named Anne-Marie Kidder, and she says this. She says, mysticism helps us recover the presence of God in the world and in everyday life. It makes intelligible the personal experience with God. It unmasks false God experiences and allows God's presence to emerge where one might have overlooked or ignored it before. I don't know about you. As I said, that word mysticism can make me a bit uncomfortable, but all we're talking about is experiencing God directly together. 
And now I'm not talking about throwing out intellect altogether and swinging the pendulum all the way to mysticism. No, there's dangers there. But we need to find that balance between the head and the heart where it comes together and we realize that both are necessary for not certainty, but for faith. And how do we grow in this? Really, it's what we've been talking about for a while. It's that spiritual formation that we're trying to do. It's reading and meditating on God's Word. It's contemplative prayer and the daily examine and all these things, silence and solitude. Bring these into our lives. But the big question still exists. What about doubt? Well, what I want you to understand about doubt is doubt is normal. It happens to all of us, or it should. John the Baptist. Think about John the Baptist for just a moment. This man's out in the desert doing crazy stuff, eating crazy stuff. Jesus shows up. He baptizes Jesus. The heavens open up. A dove comes down, and there's an audible voice. If there's ever anything that ought to remove doubt for us, it's an audible voice of God from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Awesome. Certainty right there. The end of this man's life, he sends disciples to Jesus. You know what this question is? Are you the one? How in the world could you possibly ask that, John? How stupid are you? No, John is just real. And he's struggling. He knows life is his life's coming to an end, and he wants to know. After the resurrection, we meet a guy named Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples. Gets named Doubting Thomas. Kind of a really terrible nickname for 2,000 years. We need to give this guy a new nickname. Because he wasn't the only one who doubted. He's just the one that gets labeled this. And he looks and he says to the disciples, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I won't believe. And do you know how Jesus responded to two of the biggest doubters in the Bible? He comes in and he says, what else do I have to do? Get your crap together. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He looks at them and he looks to John's disciples. and He says, hey, guys, go back and you tell John. Blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leprous, the leprous are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. You know what Jesus does? Shows, reveals. To Thomas, Jesus comes in the room. Oh, come on, Thomas. It's okay. Put your hand there. Feel. Stop doubting. You can believe. In an often overlooked letter written by a guy named Jude in the New Testament, so short, there's only one chapter, but in verse 22, Jude writes these words. He says, be merciful to those who doubt, beginning with yourself and those around you. You see, where we want to look at doubt and we want to say, well, doubt means you don't have faith. Oh, or maybe, just maybe, doubt is the evidence that you do have faith. Because if you're not doubting, what are you believing? Testing of faith, asking questions, all these things that can build faith and give us a per per persevering faith. And maybe we can be like the man in Mark's gospel. I love this story. Mark chapter 9. A man has a son. His son is possessed. He's convulsing, having seizures. He's trying to kill himself. He's throwing himself in fires and all these stuff. Parents, put yourself in that position. What would you not be willing to do for your child in that situation? Guy goes to Jesus and says, can you help me? Jesus says, bring him to me. He says, how long has this been happening? Guy says, since childhood. 
the dad says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And I love this man's honest response. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Anybody else feel like that? I do believe, but help my unbelief. And you know what? Jesus could have looked at that and said, well, come back. Your boy is going to suffer because of your unbelief. Come back when you get that taken care of. Jesus says, no. Jesus heals the little boy in spite of this man's struggle with faith, his lack of faith. And as I look at that story, it just makes me wonder if we have more of an issue with doubt than Jesus ever did. I think so. Read this week, said Christianity has suffered more casualties from faux faith than honest doubt. So where are you this morning? Where are you in your deconstruction journey? Have your doubts begun to overwhelm your faith? I say it again. I'm saying it every week. Don't do this alone. Reach out. Others have been where you are and can help. We're not going to give you all the answers, but we can help show you maybe things that you can't currently see. Maybe you've been just doubting Jesus all the way, and today I want you to know that's okay. Faith isn't certainty. But maybe today you hear the claims of Christ and you think, you know what? I'm ready to take that leap to faith, to follow. Doesn't mean we understand it all. Doesn't mean it all gets clear. Faith is still the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen.